0: Good morning, Harvest K.L. So good to be preaching God's Word to you again today. I just count it such a great privilege uh, to serve in this way, and I uh, want to really ask uh, the Lord's blessing on this here this morning. Also, I uh, want you to know, uh, just continue to be immensely concerned for you as you work through the MCO and really the restrictions uh, that you all are under at this point Uh, I know that just from a distance, uh, my heart just goes out to you and just really asking the Lord for perseverance uh, in in this difficult time in that way. And so just a quick prayer as we start this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Harvest KL, and I thank you for each individual uh, listening in today, tuning in today. Lord, I just pray that you would continue to strengthen each member of our church uh, when it comes to just the difficulty of the restrictions of the MCO and how that's impacting all of us in our mental health, our emotional health. Uh, Lord, would you uh, not allow it to ha- uh, affect us negatively in these things, but Lord, by your spirit, would you continue to uh, just sustain us in this time? So God, we, I just pray that you would help, now help us to uh, concentrate on your word and what it has to say and how it will help us to rise above trials. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 3 this morning. Uh, I've been asked to preach today uh, along the theme of rising above our trials. Uh, I know that's your theme for this month of preaching. And uh, as I was considering what text uh, to preach to you, uh, actually, James chapter 1 was super in the running, but I just kept coming back to something I preached a number of years ago uh, from Daniel chapter 3 that I thought would be so uh, encouraging and helpful to you even today. And so, this morning I, I want us to look deeply uh, we're going to look at the whole chapter but l- let me just ask you some questions maybe to prime uh, you d- to think about this what do you do when you have a boss uh, who's in charge of a uh, of uh, who's in charge of you and he you're selling something for him and he says um, that from now on this product that you're in charge of selling uh, you have to lie about it what would you do what happens if you uh, you're, you're your spouse suddenly says, I know I said I do in front of God and others, but now I, I, I don't think I'm in love anymore and I, I found somebody else. What would you do? What if the phone rings and, and it's an instance where tragedy strikes and, and you're never going to see that individual again? Uh, what would you do? What would you do if your son or your daughter rejected your belief system and chooses a life a life of sin and and being separated from a relationship with God? You know, there's a thousand things that could cause us to feel that we are in trial and that we have to actually uh, work through the difficulties of these things. We can feel like like we're in the midst of the fire of life, is sometimes how we would say it, that, the, that, the, that we're just burning, everything around us is burning. And, and I want to challenge us today to think about faith in the fire. Uh, I want us to, st- to see here today, really this is the main idea, that we need to stand firm in the fiery test of faith, in the trials that God allows in our lives. We want to talk today about how to stand in the midst of these things, and so I would invite you right now, wherever you're watching this, uh, it might be in your room or on a couch with some people, just stand right now. Just, everybody stand up. I know normally you're, you're probably all snuggled in and ready to go on your couch, but just stand up for a minute. We today want to figure out how to stand firm in the midst of the trials that God brings us to. You know, it's actually pretty hard to stand firm, and and we're tempted many times to to manage situations or to bargain our way with God in some way, thinking that that's how it's supposed to happen. But the requirement is really standing firm. And that's why I have you standing right now. But you can take a seat as we look at our text here today, Daniel chapter 3. We want to look at what it means to have faith in the fire, what it means to stand in the midst of trials. As we look at the book of Daniel, just a a quick overview, Daniel, uh, up to this point, we have seen that God is sovereignly protecting in every situation those who loyally stand for him. That's actually a major theme of the book of Daniel that we see over and over again, that when we stand for the things that God stands for, that God stands for us. And so in chapter 1, we, we've seen that we can really trust God. If, if you read chapter 1, you can see how, how uh, that's, that's for real. God really does take care of us. And then in chapter 2 wh- is really a lesson about how to build your faith. And then today, how to stand in the midst of the fiery test and trials that, that God takes us through. And so God wants to us, teach us something here today, and he uses this story to do so. And, and really, it's an amazing story I love that God uses the genre of story to explain truth. And so even as we look at the story today, I want to show you the six parts of the story. You know how when a story is told, sometimes it's divided by chapters, or if it's a play, it's divided by scenes. And and we can kind of look here and see six different sections or scenes in this particular story. And I want to just take us through those things, and then uh, we'll look at the six scenes, and then uh, we're going to draw out five principles that I believe God wants us to see from this particular story today. And so let's look to understand the story today. Scene number one uh, is the golden image. That's what I would call this scene if we were uh, titling it that. And really, we see it's a picture of idolatry. Let's read here a little bit this morning. Uh, I'm just going to take us through the text. In verse one, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and it's breadth, breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So re- remember here, Daniel in chapter 2 had actually interpreted a dream. Actually, he told King Nebuchadnezzar what the dream was, and then he interpreted it. And in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar was told that he was the, the golden head of the statue that was in the dream made up of different materials. So he was at the head. He, he, he was the gold, the purest, purest material. And Nebuchadnezzar, seeing that, apparently decides to build a whole statue built of gold in his honor. And so we see this pillar of statue, pillar meaning it was, it was very tall, 30, it was roughly 30 meters high. You think about um, actually something very similar in the city of KL. You know that at the Batu Caves, the Lord Murgon statue stands, and you're all familiar with that, right? It actually stands 43 meters high, so Nebuchadnezzar's was a bit shorter than what you see at the Batu Caves. But what we see here is that this idol is being constructed, and it's set on the plain of Dura, which is right near Babylon. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, archaeology has been been looking and uncovering and found what they think is the base of this very statue at that location. But we don't really believe because of archaeology, we believe because of what God's word has to say. Actually, it's not just teaching us history, it's teaching us something about God and how to relate to him, and so we we need to read on further. It says in verse 2, The king Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the serotaps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, and the treasurers, and the justices, and the magistrates, and all the important people in his kingdom, and all the officials of the provinces came to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. We see that this is a major thing. Nebuchadnezzar has likely spent a number of years to have this built and then has been planning this massive dedication ceremony that's going to be happening, although we soon find that it's much more than a dedication ceremony. It's something much more evil than that, actually. In verse 3 and 4, it says, Then all the important people, it says, the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples of the nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, the orchestra, it says, every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that the King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And so we see here as all these officials are assembled together, that, that it's not really just a dedication ceremony, it's now a religious service where all of these officials are going to be commanded to bow down. And what we find is that this worship of an idol is not a problem to them. As At the sound of the orchestra and the music, this is what they're going to do. Now, think about why they would do that. It actually tells us in verse 5 It says, and 6, it says, "...whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." This is an amazing threat. This is a serious threat. The king has commanded it, everybody has to do it, and they're going to do it. Why? Well, it wasn't because they actually believed it. It wasn't because their heart was actually drawn to this. It was simply that the king was threatening them. It was out of fear that they were going to do this very action, that they were going to participate in this religious service of bowing down to this idol. Otherwise, they'd be thrown into the fiery furnace, which was likely a a, a large room. They think it would have been built into the side of a hill. There would have been a door at the top, and at the bottom, it would have been something that they could have heated very hot. I, I mean, think about this. What would you do if your job was threatened if you didn't do something sinful, if you didn't worship this idol? What would you do if... Your friends said that they would no longer be a friend unless you stopped worshiping God and started doing something like this. What would you do if there was threats involved? If you didn't worship something false? Would you? Would you actually do it like all these religious officials are doing? See, this picture of idolatry is very prominent, and it seems long ago and far away and maybe something different, and yet we face situations like this in our lives actually rather regularly. But that's just scene one. Let's let's keep going. Scene two continues on here where we see the green-eyed monsters appear. Really, it's a picture of jealousy because there's some who are green with envy, as is the term, because of some of the Jewish people that, were, that are going to be appearing in the in, in story. So it says in verse 7, Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the, the orchestra, all the people, peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now, remember, Babylon is the superpower of the day. They would have had people from all over, all other countries, embassies, and ambassadors, and, and officials from other places would have been there. And everybody... Everybody is bowing down to the image, and we see here this repetition of what was already told to us about the, really demonstrating the preciseness in the, of, of what needed to be happening here, and, and in that, we see a group of people appear in verse 8. It says, therefore, at the time, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Now, we have to think a little bit about the Chaldeans. We have seen them before, or before in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, in chapter 2, we saw that these were the individuals that the king first called in to to tell him his dream and then interpret the dream, but they couldn't do it. I mean, even their, their most treasured way of doing this, which apparently involved the sheep liver being split and how things fell somehow w- would give them a- an idea of what the dr- dream was mean- meaning to be. They realized that that sheep liver trip trick was not nearly as powerful as the God of Yahweh that God that Daniel worshipped. And ultimately, Daniel was the one that was able to tell the dream and interpret it for the king. And so they're jealous. They're jealous because they've seen the, these Jewish individuals who were taken out of, cap, out of the country in exile when Babylon co- conquered the nation. Uh, they've seen that the lowest of the low ha- have given, been given places of position, and then they were promoted in chapter 1, and then they were re-promoted again in chapter 2, and so they're so jealous they want to tear down these individuals. I mean, you know how this works, right? You've talk, seen workplace politics in place. When somebody seems to be excelling and get above the rest, anything that can be done to pull that person down so that somebody else can get ahead happens. And that's exactly what's happening here. And so it says in verse 9 they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Think about that for a second. What's going on there? Do they really want the king to live forever? No. They're just kissing up. They're just trying to, to fake their way into favor so that they can have some sort of response from the king here. O king, live forever, they say. Continue on in verse 10. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn and all the orchestra shall fall down and worship the golden image, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning fiery furnace. They, they report repeat the king's words to him to remind him of what he has to say because they want it done. They then go on, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs, there's the jealousy. You appointed them over the affairs. We're going to try to tear them down. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, "These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up." They're saying, certain Jews, they've disregarded to you, which disregarded you. And any way that they can twist things around to make it so that they can get ahead is what they're doing here because they're green with envy. They say, those Jews, they're not doing what you say. They're not on your team, our team. I'm on your team. We're kissing up to you. That's scene two. Scene three continues. And we see the red-faced king, which is the picture of insanity. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? It says in verse 13. He, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. Think about that. What does the rage of a Near Eastern ancient king look like? Go ahead and turn to your neighbor and make that face to them. What, what, what does that look on his face look like? He sends for these three individuals to come. What, what do you think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are feeling as they are bound and brought before the king? What's going on inside of them? What's the emotion that has been uh, stirred up within them? goes on to say, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Is that true? Look at the very direct nature that he's pointing at them and, and, and pressuring them. At this moment, the pressure is so high. The trial was so intense at this moment. He goes on and says in ver- goes on to say in verse 15, Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the orchestra again, uh, fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning furnace. So Nebuchadnezzar again reiterates his, his threat towards these men. I'm going to punish you if you don't do this, which is so arrogant when we're punishing the innocent. And then notice what it happens here. Look what he says at the end. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? This is the challenge right here. This is the challenge that he's putting before them. Now, it's fascinating to hear this challenge. He's saying, who's your God? Now, at the end of chapter two, we see that it seemed like Nebuchadnezzar began to recognize who their God was. After after the t- dream was told, and it says in the end of chapter 2, verse 46, the king fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. He was worshiping him, which is the wrong thing to do. And he commanded that offering and incense be offered up to him. That's the worship that's going on to Daniel. We don't worship any person. We only worship God. But he's worshiping Daniel, which goes to show you that what he's about to say, he, he thinks he's right about, but he's not fully understanding The king said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. He seems to recognize who this God is, and yet now he's challenging this God. Now he's saying, who's your God? Who could save you from what I'm about ready to do to you? This is the picture of a king who's insane, back and forth, back and forth. He doesn't know what to believe. He's mad. So then we see the the stare-down. This is scene number four. The stare-down, it's a picture of integrity, what we see in verses 16 and 17. It says in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. They're saying, you don't need to put us on trial, king. We're, We're agreeing that we did not bow down, nor will we bow down to your stupid idol. Verse 17, if this be so... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. Wow, look at the faith of these men. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods nor worship the golden image that you have set up. The contrast here is awesome. Nebuchadnezzar says, what God could possibly do it? And Meshach and Abednego say, our God, our God, our God can save us. Our God is able to do that. So we're not going to worship your idol. Think about that. They walked into their palace. I don't know what they were feeling, but they set their jaw. Their eyes were clear. They were asked, is it true? And the king gives this big, bad speech of what he's going to do. And they say, we don't need to answer you because God is able We're not going to worship your idol. Even if the consequences come for not doing so, we believe that God is taking care of us. That leads us to scene number five, five, the fiery furnace, which was a picture of intensity. Look what happens in verse 18. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. Think about the face that you just made to your neighbor, right? And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. This king, he, he's mad. His facial expression changes. He, he wants to make them do this. And when they say they won't, he says his, the intensity of his anger gets so, mach, so, so big that they're like, add more fuel, add more draft, add more heat, get that thing fired up. I don't think he was concerned about seven times. He was just saying, get it maximum heated. Go above the limits of the manufacturer here. Get this thing as hot as we possibly can, because I'm so hot that they're not doing what I have to say. And in verse 20, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning furnace. He's like, listen, we don't need Boy Scouts here taking care of this. We want the Navy SEALs. We want the Special Forces. We want the biggest, baddest guys in our army to come here. I don't want anything that th- these guys to get away in any way. I'm so upset. It says in verse 21, these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics and their hats and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning furnace. Interesting detail. Why is that recorded? That they're bound in their cloaks and their hats and their tunes. What it's saying is, we're not going to delay because normally what would happen in this instance is they would be stripped of their clothing and then they would be punished. But instead of taking time to strip them down, they just bound them up. It has to be done immediately and now. No delay. Verse 22, because the king's Order was urgent, and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Notice, three of them. Notice, they're bound and falling into the furnace. Only God can help them now. And that takes us to scene six, the sovereignty of God, the picture of of deity. What we see back in in verse 24, uh, as the king responds, the king was astonished and he rose up in haste and he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. Nebuchadnezzar is astonished. It's actually pretty amazing. You think about the list of emotions that happened within the king throughout the book of Daniel. He's back and forth, back and forth. He, he seems to be in his right mind and then he's out of his mind. He's, he's happy and he's angry all the time. And in all of this, he's sitting and watching the spectacle that's happening, thinking that he's in control of all of these things, and then suddenly he stands up and he's astonished because of what he sees. Look, in verse, look at verse 25, it says, He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So a couple of things that are going on here, we see actually three miracles going on. The first miracle, a small miracles, they're not they're not bound anymore. The second miracle is that they're not dead even though the special forces guys are dead from the outside. They're in the fire and they're not dead. And then the and then the third major thing is that they're not alone. There's a fourth individual walking around inside the fire with them. Now, we understand what's going on inside the fire, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in there, and God is protecting them because Jesus is now with them. That's who the fourth person is, and they're in there worshiping. Our God is an awesome God. And meanwhile, outside the fire, the king is like, what's going on? It appears like there is a son of the gods inside of there. Nebuchadnezzar can't know. He doesn't know who Jesus is, so he doesn't recognize, and his best description is that is, is like the son of a god. A little bit later, he's going to call him an angel from God. But really, what we see here is that uh, there's something significant about this fourth individual. There's really two views. Uh, A lot of times scholars look at this and they say, well, there was an an angel that was there that God sent, kind of like what Nebuchadnezzar says. But really, I believe that the Bible is teaching us here that this is Jesus himself who's in there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is the pre-incarnate Jesus. This is Jesus before he was put on flesh and born as a baby in the manger. This is Jesus, thousands, hundreds of years, and even thousands of years before his coming to earth, appearing in the story of the Bible. Now, a lot of times people think that Jesus only is in the New Testament portion of the Bible, but what we see is over and over, he appears in the Old Testament, and so that's why the Gospel of John records, in John 1, 1, first verse, in the beginning was the word, Jesus, and the word, and the word was was God and word was with God. I just kind of messed up the recitation there, but you, you get the point, right? In the beginning was Jesus. And then it says in verse 14 that he put on flesh and dwelt among us that, that we could see the glory of God. So that was what was happening in the New Testament. But long before that, Jesus was in existence. We know from Colossians chapter one, he was the one that was doing creation. And so in all of this, we see That Jesus is present here. And not the first time in the Old Testament we see Jesus present. Actually, in, in Genesis chapter 18, he appears to Abraham as the angel of the Lord. That's Jesus. And then in Joshua chapter 5, he appears as the captain of the Lord's army. That's what the text says, but that's actually Jesus. And so in all of this, I want you to see here that this fourth individual that Nebuchadnezzar can't recognize, we with eyes of faith understand, come to realize Jesus is in the fire with them. He's in the trial with them. So then we see the rest of the story. Verse 26, Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God. He's using the right title, but he doesn't really quite know this Most High God yet. He says, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. That's a miracle, right? And the seraphs, the prefects, the governors, the kings, counselors gathered together. It was the spectacle of they couldn't take their eyes off of it. And they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. I mean, this verse, I have a system where I highlight things in pink that are miracles in the Bible, and this whole verse is highlighted in pink because what we're seeing here is this incredible miracle of God preserving those who stood for him, no matter what it cost to them. Nebuchadnezzar answers and said, "'Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, "'who has sent his angel to deliver his servants.'" His servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. And notice this is such a key part. I have a big, a big rectangular around the words they trusted in him. And how did they? How did Nebuchadnezzar know they trusted in God? Because they set aside the king's command, yielded up their own bodies rather than serve and worship the god that I told them to worship the idol I told them to worship, and they worshiped their own god only. You see, this is, this is so, such the key part of this chapter, to see how they trusted in Jesus in the midst of the trial, and it was recognized by all uh, what they trusted in at this moment. In all of this, I want you to see a truth for application, that God calls us to stand firm, stand firm, stand firm in your trials. Stand firm in the trials is what it, what it tells us. And, and actually, uh, a verse that uh, is so important for me that, has re- that helps keep me, me, me focused and centered on this is from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 9, that says, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. This is such an important verse to understand. It's saying if you do not stand firm in your faith, if you if you let your faith kind of slip away, if you get your eyes off of God and trusting in him and begin to trust in something other than him, you're not firm, you're not confirmed is actually what it's saying. Uh, An author named Raymond Ortland has said this about this verse in Isaiah. God literally says, if you do not firm up, you will not be confirmed. In other words, you'll live by faith or you won't live at all. But if you do want my support, all you have to do is lean on me. God is attracted to weakness and need and honesty. He is repelled by our self-assured pride. I love that quote because I think it sums up so much of how, they, how sh- these three men trusted in Jesus in this very moment. Now, that's the story and the six different scenes. And I think already probably God's spirit is working to, to uh, help you learn some things. But let me just draw out five principles that I believe that this text is teaching us in regards to how to stand firm in our faith in the midst of trials. The first one is this. If your faith is real, you will have trials. There's going to be conflict if your faith is real. Now, notice the first part of the phrase here, if your faith is real. What I'm saying is not everybody's faith is real. Not everybody who says that they have faith actually are putting their trust in the Lord. It's actually part of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus teaches and he tells us that it doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't even matter what, you, what your great works are, it's really your obedience to Christ and repentance and following after him that is the thing that actually saves us. And what we see here is a trio of men of real faith. They were not cultural Christians, they did not give in to peer pressure or boss pressure or cultural pressure. There was a hostile culture that they were living within, and they refused to compromise in the midst of it. And that brought on certain conflict. There was always going to be friction, and not just friction, but war that would happen because they put their faith and trust in the real God instead of doing what others wanted them to do. And that causes us to feel a little bit funny. I was looking at Psalm 119 recently, and it says at one point, Oh Lord, I am a stranger on earth. The psalmist is saying, God, when I follow after you, I don't fit in. And that causes conflict. Now, many of you are living cross-culturally. Many of you know what it feels like to not fit in and to be at odds with those who do things differently than you around, around you. And yet, what we find is that as believers, that is true of every one of us who live in this world that is at war against the Father. And yet, what we see here is that the promise of Scripture is that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Did anybody ever tell you that when you became a Christian? Did anybody tell you that that comes from scripture, that Paul has written those words? Or as Peter has written in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter's saying, listen, you should expect trials in this life. Don't think that that's strange. As a Christian and as a believer, we're learning today how to rise above trials. And so many times we think, why do I even have to face this trial? Why do I have to go through this difficulty? And Peter's telling you, don't be surprised by that. But, he says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Being reviled and persecuted for Christ is proof that you really know God. And that's important. And I think also important in all of this, because there's actually friction and war and two different sides to things, it's so important that people uh, are upset with us because of what, who we believe in, not what we do. In other words, don't be a jerk about being a Christian. Don't be a jerk about how you go about trying to live out God's principles. Don't be rejected for what you stand for. Uh, be rejected for what you stand for, not how you act. So it tells here in first, in first Peter that we are to rejoice in that, and that's some, something that Paul actually also wrote as well in, in Second Corinthians chapter 2, when he talked a little bit about what it's like to be uh, in friction and at war in this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are, uh, among those who are being saved. We're the fragrance of Christ. So if you're sitting watching this with somebody, turn, turn to them right now and just sniff. They're the fragrance of Christ. I mean, part of the reason you want, you're watching this today is because you want to be a part of the body of Christ because it's so attractive and fragrant and you want to be a part of that. But also notice the verse goes on and says, to those who are perishing, to the one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient for all of these things? Listen, to those who don't believe in Christ, when we demonstrate our faith that is real, it causes conflict because they smell death. So we have to understand if our faith is real, we're going to have trials. So many times we think that when things are going well, when we're promoted, when we have food and roof and position, that that, that means that God's blessing and his favor is upon us. And we, uh, we say that blessing is really, a, really about prosperity in some ways, but that's, that's not really true. Uh, what we find is that real faith is revealed in the midst of these trials. And so think about it in the second principle in this way. When life gets turned upside down, what's inside comes outside. The reality of who I am on the inside, in my soul, in my spirit, the internal nature of who I am, when life gets turned upside down and I'm facing these trials, that's what reveals what is real about me. We find out where people are spiritually when things go bad. Anyone can trust Christ when things are going well, but it's when we get turned upside down and we have these trials in life that we really find out. It's the tough times that we find out. Remember, God has said there's going to be trials, and, and I really believe there's trials that come in seasons and the times are really intense, and then, and then it's not so bad for a while, and, and then it seems like we're in another trial again, and, and that's the totality of the, our lifetime here in this world. Can you handle trials in this life I mean if you were threatened that if 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 you were to watch this message and somebody could track you and, and they said listen we're we're going to come and we're going to use rods and whips and we'll beat you if you watch this message would you still do it what, what what if you were told we'll throw you in prison if you preach the gospel would you still go to the evangelism training or not I mean it, if it came down to deny or die, what would be your choice? I think what we see in this world are really three kinds of people, and, and that this really begins to reveal this, which kind of people we are. The first kind of person is somebody who's never committed to Jesus Christ. And and listen, those people are listening, I believe, even today to this message. They're trying to figure out who Jesus is. They're trying to figure out how to live a life in relationship with God through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And, And I think this is a message to help clarify for you, do you actually believe this or not? There's a second kind of person. It's somebody who professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but their outside doesn't show the reality of what's going on on the inside. They say that they're a Christian. They say that they believe in Jesus Christ. They say that they'll follow him in the most difficult times, but that's not actually true. So I have a friend who worked for a while as an investigator who would uh, go around and and look at the various shops and and find out if the shop owners were selling fake or real uh, goods. And so what was in the bottle many times would have a label on it and it would have a label that would demonstrate that it was exported from another country, imported into Malaysia, and, and it's the real deal. And and the label, the seal is supposed to be the approval that it's been checked and ready to go. But there's fakes that have that label on it. And so he would investigate and try to find out if that was really true or not. And listen, when we face trials, we find out if that label is true in our life. Another way to look at it is I, I regularly uh, would go to Chinatown to buy my sunglasses because it seemed like every other week I was sitting on them. And so it wasn't worth buying an expensive pair of sunglasses. And, and I found what I found is I could go to Chinatown and buy a pair of sunglasses that looked real. But I only paid a fraction of the cost of the designer sunglasses because they weren't actually real. Like It's super easy to get away with that kind of thing. And so it's hard to know if somebody is really believer or not based upon what their outward appearance looks like. But listen, when we get turned upside down, it shakes us up and it finds out what's real, which that's the third kind of person, somebody who is for real. What's on the inside is true belief. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is teaching about the wheat and the tares and how those things get planted and grow side by side. And, and actually, he doesn't even want them torn up. He wants those things to grow together because he doesn't want to remove real faith. Listen, so many times, the trials are what reveal who is the wheat and the tare. The trials turn us over, and what in, what's real on the inside actually comes out and is revealed. What would you have been doing if you were one of these individuals? Would it confirm, this trial, confirm what's real in you? Or do you even know right now? Is the Spirit of God even speaking right now and saying, listen, you you need to truly trust me because the way that you have trusted up to this point has not been for real. Here's a third principle I think we see from this. God is testing your faith, so surrender. Surrender. Look at verse 17 and 18. This is where the three men respond. They say this amazing statement. I think this is one of the high water marks in the, all of the Bible. You should have like big underlines and squared off and highlighted. This is such an, these are such important verses. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Your threat doesn't actually change what we know to be true. Faith that trusts God only for what he does for me is actually failure, it's worldly faith. It's a faith that demands things, that I'm going to get things from God, and so I'll only believe him if he does certain things for me. It's not faith in the person of God, and it oftentimes revealed that I am putting myself in the position of God, that I'm actually telling God, serve me. But faith that says, I'll trust you, God, either way. I know you can, but it's up to you if you will rescue me in this trial. I'm not going to demand, I'm going to surrender to you. That's real faith. Notice these three men, that their obedience was not dependent upon God doing what they wanted. Which I think is such an important thing for us to see, because how many people worship God because you expect something from him? Don't think about other people, think about yourself. How many times have you said, I worship you, God, because you did what I wanted you to do? But if you didn't do it, I wouldn't really believe you, or I would doubt you, or I would just kind of ignore you. How many times has that happened in our lives? What if God doesn't do what you're asking Him to do? What if He doesn't heal your marriage? What if you don't ever conceive a child? What if he doesn't give you the career things that you want? Or what if God lets some things happen where it breaks your heart, where a child walks away from relationship with you and with God himself? What if God allows you to develop an illness? In all of this, remember, scripture says, don't put God to the test, but God does want to test and see if our faith is full and real. The key in all of this is God is in the process of refining us and proving and testing faith in those who really know him and those who truly know him surrender to the testing that God does like these men did in this story. Here's the fourth principle I want us to see. We need to stand for Jesus and Jesus will then stand for you. When I stand for the things that Jesus has called me to, Jesus stands up for me. I want to just bring in a story from the New Testament, the story of of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Remember, Stephen, he confronts the religious leaders and said, you're the ones who killed Jesus, you're the ones who were supposed to receive him, instead you rejected him, and they got so upset at him that they dragged him out of the city and they stoned him. Now, stoning is such a terrible thing because really the objective is first to maim the individual and then kill them. And in the middle of the stoning that's going on, when Stephen is already not of sound body or mind because of all the blows that he's taken, he looks up, and in the midst of being maimed, he looks up and he sees into heaven, and do you remember what he sees? He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, now that's so significant because Jesus is always seated in the New Testament. He's always seated demonstrating that his work on earth is done. So when Stephen looks up and he sees Jesus standing, it's different than any other time that we see in the New Testament. And we got to be asking, what is he standing for? Well, he's standing up because Stephen was standing firm in his faith in the midst of the trial. When you take a stand, Jesus will support you in that situation. And the reason is because he has this immense love for you. He has this intimate relationship with you. When you suffer with him and you don't compromise the way he suffered and didn't compromise, Jesus loves to be with you. He will stand for you and he'll protect you. Listen, maybe he won't protect you physically on this earth, but he has protected your soul and he'll, he'll embrace you with arms wide open. It's the greatest thing that could ever happen. To have God grab you hold of you in the midst of your trial, even if it means the end of physical life right now. So I was thinking a little bit about this whole story back in Daniel. And I was thinking about how Jesus rescued, he goes into the fire, stands with them, rescues them in the midst of the very dire last moment. And I got to thinking about, wait a second, God is sovereign. He knows he will deliver them. And it got to bugging me a little bit and I, because I was thinking, well, why, God, didn't you just deliver them way earlier? You, you could have done that in all sorts of different ways. In the midst of all that was going on as Nebuchadnezzar was making his, his arrogant decrees about worshiping this idol, you could have split the palace. You could have blown up the statue. You could have saved them from all sorts of things before them. Uh, imagine what they had to go through. God, why did you take them that far? Why did you take them to the spot where they were in the fire? I mean, it was horrible for them. They were tied up. Think about all that was going on inside of them as they were dragged to the edge and as the special forces guys fell over and they fell in. Think of all the terror that was going on with them. There was a lot of suffering going on for something God was already knew he was going to deliver. Why did God, if he knew he was going to deliver them, allow them to go that far? Well, I think there's two reasons. The first reason is this. The impact on the observers was greater. Notice all the officials who came and observed and saw the miracle that the hair on their heads was not singed, the cloaks was not harmed, the smell of fire was not even on them. God got greater glory out of allowing these individuals to go through the depth of the trial and be with them than to save them earlier. Here's the second thing. I think we learn things in the fire that you can't learn from just observing the fire. In all of this, I believe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as amazing as the story is for you and I, as it's the high, one of the high water marks in the, in the scriptures for us to observe and see what true faith looks like and, and what inside faith should actually be, we, when we see that as observers and we are taught that, and I believe this is teaching that, I believe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego learned it even better because they went through it. God did not lack any love for them as he allowed that to happen, but he teaches them as they go through it, and that's the same for you. You might be asking, God, you can do this. Why are you allowing me to go through this? Why couldn't you have saved me earlier? And I want you to know that God is teaching you things that you can only understand in the fire of trial. He's de- demonstrating a depth of love that if you will by faith meet him there, you will, you will know far more about him and how to follow him and the sweetness of a relationship with him than if you only saw it as an observer or were taught it from this sermon here today. In all of this, when we stand for Jesus, Jesus stands for us. And then here's the fifth principle. Give it all no matter what. Give God everything no matter what. Now, I'll tell you, we hate this. <laughs> I think all people kind of hate this. The totality, the completeness, the sold-out requirement of faith. We object and say, that's too narrows. I want it both ways. I want to love God and have my skin saved. Some people who are listening to this, they're like, honey, let's get out of here. I don't want this kind of thing. I want a comfortable message that says no matter how I live, God's going to take care of me and get out of this. But we're not going to hear that message here because that's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that when you're completely sold out for God, that's true faith. That's faith in the fire. There's all sorts of reasons that Daniel could have compromised these, in his story, and these men could have compromised in this particular furnace story. But I believe there's a number of scriptures that help us understand how being completely sold out is completely worth it. In 1 John 2, 15 and 17, it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. They're saying give it all. James 1, 8 says, A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Let not that person think that he will receive anything from the Lord. Give it all. Matthew 5 says, No man can serve two masters. Either he will love one and hate the other. Listen you got to be all sold out. Give it all no matter what. And Matthew 10 says this, If you confess me before men, if you take a stand for me, I will confess you before my Father. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. Stand firm in the fiery test of your faith. If we're going to rise above trials, we need faith in the fire. God sets this bar so high, and yet he also tells us that he will take care of us if we put our trust in him. So in the summer of 1997, my college roommate went on a mission trip to the country of Jamaica, and they went to minister among the very poor in the city, the capital city of Kingston. Kingston is a place that is impoverished and there's all sorts of gang uh, trouble that happens there and they were in the daytime they were helping build various buildings for churches and then in the evening they would do evangelistic programs trying to draw people to Christ and so they would sing on on the corner with a guitar, draw a crowd and then they would give a gospel presentation. One night, as they were singing and preparing and trying to draw that crowd, there were suddenly gunshots that rang out right down the street, right close by to them, and everybody began to duck for cover except for one Jamaican believer who was with them. He, he, in the midst of everybody ducking down, scared and beginning to scatter and move away, he, he told everybody, stand firm, stand firm, that God will take care of us. You need to hear the message of Jesus Christ. You see, as crazy as that sound, he was putting his full trust, he was giving all and saying, the thing that matters most is that you hear about the beauty of Jesus even though their gunshots were firing around danger was all around when everybody was seeking to scatter and move away in the midst of that uh, of that instance he was helping shouting and yelling to everybody the gospel matters most jesus matters most listen this message here today is saying just like shadrach and Bishak and abednego that said listen we believe god will take care of us but even if we die he's taking care of us that matters that's true faith that's faith that stands firm in the trial. That's faith that says, I believe in the fullness of God, whether it harms me or not, just like like Nebuchadnezzar said, these are the men who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except for their own God. That's faith in the fire. So let me ask you as we close here, do you struggle with this sold out nature of faith that is being demonstrated in this story? And that really is a key to rising above trials. I think we all do at some level. I don't preach this as one who says, I have this all figured out and that I'm so strong and able to do this, but I do say this. I think we're gonna struggle. We're gonna be tempted to compromise. When you're in the midst of a tough marriage, the message is just saying, stand firm. When you feel all alone in the world, stand firm, don't give up. When the relational thing is going down, can can you take a stand for Christ in the midst of that, even if it's costly? Can you count the cost today and choose today that you'll be loyal to him by his grace? That you'll put your eyes on the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, not on anything else? And if you're not in the fiery trial of life right now today, will you prepare for whatever it is that God is going to take you through in the coming days? Today I want you to see that we need to make a stand for Jesus, that we need faith in the fire if we are going to rise and follow him over and above the trials that he allows in our life. Listen, for his glory he's going to allow you to go through some of these things. And for your good, for your, for your opportunity to learn the depth of loving relationship with him, he'll take you through something deep to do that. Will you have the faith to stand in the trial? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, even as we've taken time to study a long chapter of the Bible here, Lord, we ask that you would help us to stand firm in the fiery test of our faith that you bring our way. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be completely sold out and committed and give all no matter what. Lord, would you help us to, to believe in the fullness of who you are, that we would never wander astray or, or bow down to anything else other than you? God, If I pray for those who right now are in the midst of significant trial. Would you help them to get their eyes on you? Would they see your beauty? Would you overwhelm them with your great love and the depth of it, even in the midst of the difficulty? And for your glory, Lord, would they stand firm? And Lord, for those who are not not in a trial right now, would you prepare us for what you have coming uh, in our lives? Lord, we don't know what that is, but we know that we can trust you. Continue to show us your character. Would you help us to be people who trust you, who yield up our bodies rather than serve and worship any God except you? God, we pray this in your son's name. Amen.